Welcome to my passion project, the Bold Flavors Podcast. I'm Timo, founder and CEO of Gusto. At Gusto, our vision is to be the most loved way to eat dinner and we're currently delivering over 1 million meals every single week in the UK. We are a data company that loves food and we are customer and culture obsessed. From every episode, you can expect in-depth conversations on leadership, what makes a person tick and scaling businesses. Since starting Gusto in 2012, I've spoken with so many amazing, inspirational and talented people who have shaped my thinking. This podcast is about sharing some of these experiences with you. My guest today is James, the CEO of Yule, the nutrition brand. James is clearly super intelligent and a really fun person to talk to as he's one of the most reflective and growth mindset focused leaders I've known. Of course, I also love James for having been a Gusto customer for years now. In this episode, James and I will talk about how he scaled Goo and Ella's Kitchen, two of the UK's most loved food brands, and now Yule to $100 million what he thinks the hardest part of the scaling journey is and how he has built up resilience to stay sane on this marathon of a journey. Hi, James. I'm super keen to hear how you're thinking about the future of food and scaling Huel. But before we go into uh, that topic, I want to hear where you're from. Thank you. Yeah, so I grew up in, in Hertfordshire, edge of North London, I'm one of three kids, so uh, I'm the middle child. My parents, neither of them were born in the UK, actually. So my dad is from New Zealand and my mum is from Iran. And they came here and then I was born in London, lived in Hertfordshire and uh, had, had a, you know, I think a great upbringing um, out there. And how, how did it culturally influence you um, with your parents being born um, overseas? I think a little bit about... So neither of them went to university and we went to private school. So you, you probably have a greater realization both now and a little bit then about some of the sacrifices they made to make that happen. And they worked really hard mm -hmm. for that. So it definitely in, influenced me. And I think I've always had maybe more the, the private school bit is probably quite interesting. I think I was, I was never sort of top set type thing. I was always second set and it, it creates that, that feeling that you always need to get better and you're never, never quite good enough. And it's funny, I always think back to that Avis car advert, which says that we're, <laughs> we're number two, we need to try harder. And I think you sort of, at the time, all you know is that world. I went to the same school from seven to 18 and, and I just sort of always felt a little bit sort of average. And actually you come out of that world and you go, that wasn't, wasn't too bad. So I think the private school bit was interesting and, and them sacrificing for that. Um, and then where we grew up, I, I a lot, played a lot of sport, actually, because we were in, in a village on the edge of London and I played tennis and swimming and water polo and rugby and football. And I didn't really get into much trouble as a kid. I sort of worked reasonably hard and I played a lot of sport. And I think sport forms you in a really positive way in terms of teamwork and drive. And uh, particularly at weekends, I remember on, on Saturday, we play rugby at school. Sunday morning, I played club rugby. And then Sunday afternoon was school was club water polo. So my parents would drive us around a lot and we sort of really appreciated it, but we we're very head down and I, I had a really enjoyable upbringing. 
Amazing. Sounds like you definitely learned work ethics um, from that time and your parents. And when was the first time you thought about business and entrepreneurship and were your parents into business? So dad worked in the city of London in recruitment um, and mum was a housewife most of the time. I think I, I was quite geeky into business rather than geeky into academia. And I remember dad used to come home with the evening standard each night and I was probably like 12 or 13 or something. And the first thing I'd do is obviously hug him and say hi. And I'd sort of go straight <laughs> to the business section, which thinking about it now is a bit of an odd thing to do for a teenager to do. So I was always fascinated by it. And I ended up doing a year out between school and uni where most of my friends would go traveling to Thailand and stuff. And I ended up working at PwC doing accounting, which is, again, sort of something inside me wanted to go straight into the world of business. And I, I soon learned that actually accounting was definitely not for me. It was very looking back at things rather than looking forwards. But I've always wanted to jump in. And, and uh, you know, in some ways, I didn't, didn't really want to go to university. I kind of liked the idea of businesses and people that work in businesses from a pretty early age. And then I think you studied at Warwick Business School. Um, what, what exactly did you study? So I did a management science degree, which is probably a posh way of saying business. And <laughs> it, was at, it was at the business school. So it's quite funny. When you do lectures, they say, oh, I was teaching my MBA class this earlier. So it's, it's really cool. I loved it. It was so generalist. I, I, I focused more on some of the marketing aspects and the strategy aspects, which I loved. But I think it's just a really cool, broad degree if you're not really sure what you want to do, but you definitely like businessy type things. Yeah, I studied international business administration, which again, is just a fancy term for business. And I really enjoyed it because it's so high level and general and it's fun. Which parts did you particularly enjoy? You had to do all the sort of basic stuff like accounting and finance and, and marketing and, and all the broad bits. And then you start to specialize. And I remember realizing I actually elected to do a model, a module in, in sort of advanced finance. And at the time I wanted to go into banking, which we can come back to if you like. And very, they opened up that module to all the people from the maths course. And suddenly I was like completely out of my depth, these super mathsy people. And I kind of dumped that and did, went back to all the marketing modules. So I really enjoyed brand. And I guess I, that's where I'm in now. I, I, I like tangible brands and probably didn't quite twig at the time that that was something that I'd want to do more of in the future. What did you do after graduation? My graduate job was consulting. Before I did that, I did an internship in investment banking, which when I was growing up in sort of teenage years and at university, it was the job and, and you went into banking as well right? i remember that yeah it was just um it felt like the flavor of the month everyone wanted to go into banking i didn't even know what banking was to be honest yeah and i, I felt like because i was a bit kind of business geeky from a early, early age I, i knew a lot about it wanted to do it and it was quite a big letdown actually so i did mergers and acquisitions banking and where where did you do that uh that was at citigroup mm -hmm. Basically, for the whole summer, you did loads of work, but not, not much that was particularly productive. And I had this one moment where I was asked to do something for Friday, 9 a.m., and I worked literally all night to do it. And I sat there, and the, um, the PA was there at 9 o'clock, and I said, I've got this for so-and-so. And she said, uh, well, he's not in today. And I said, well, <laughs> he's asked me to do it for 9 a.m. today. And she said, uh, yeah, I think he's just sort of testing you. And I thought, God... You know, um, so they offered me a job, and I said no, and they made me feel quite bad at the time to say what a, what a big career mistake. But 
It's funny how it changed in the years after that because Google and tech started happening, and I think they they started to become a bit sexier. And that's I think in some ways that replaced banking as the hot role to go to. So I was quite glad I didn't do that, and I I got lucky and I heard about strategy consulting and joined Lek as my grad job. And I think it's just an incredible place to go and learn. And it teaches you about being thoughtful, commercial, analytical, problem solving, and, and you jump straight into projects rather than a lot of banking was was pitching, particularly in M&A. So huge positive career decision for me to have done that, I think. And how was the, the culture different between City and LEK? The, the, someone described it as much as City. There's, there's a slight sort of military aspect of the first couple of years, you have to do what you're told and prove your worth and work all night and, and then you eventually get slightly better in that aspect. Whereas I think LEK, there was there was less hierarchy in that respect. It was more about doing a great job and you were you were solving complex problems for brands. So mm. really awesome companies would come to you with challenges for their strategy, which might be marketing related or operational related and building their business plans or working on a lot of M&A, but stuff that was definitely happening and, and you were doing the last couple of weeks to do due diligence on it. So people I met were just so smart and, and humble as well. So we were 24 in our year group, 20 guys, four, four women. Uh, and funny enough, I married Polly, who was in my, in my peer group. Oh, and, wow. And Congratulations. That's amazing. Years. And then out of, actually out of the four women in our year group, three married people. <laughs> so I didn't feel particularly special, but uh, it was a, a, a very positive memory for, for me and a great company with just the smartest people I've ever worked with. And Interesting. It, 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 there's good and bad bits, though. So, so I, I remember my first review a few months in, and this lady said to me, "You're never going to be a Phil, who's someone who's a bit of a superstar there." And it sort of knocked my confidence quite a bit. Mm. And it took me a while to kind of penny to drop and realize, you know, what I don't want to be this guy, Phil, because he was an amazing financial modeler, and I learned subsequently that I was better on communicating, being commercial, being thoughtful, and pulling things together. So it was particularly known for being quite strong in the financial modeling yet actually for me personally i was i was less good at that and and more more broad i think it sort of probably pushed me more to where i went to there so i i ended up making a phone call to a guy called jim arvadik who ran a small dessert business at the time called goo and he was an ex strategy consultant and he'd started his own business and i've always wanted to start my own business and i just wanted to meet up with him to chat about it and how he, how he did that and then suddenly went for a beer with him and the next week they offered me a job to to leave lek and go to goo so things sort of happened for a reason and um just grateful to have found my feet and followed my calling slightly yeah it's super powerful to understand what your strengths are and then how to leverage them love that story thanks for sharing and how did you find goo and i think during the time you joined goo it was probably still rapidly growing until it got sold later in 2009 or 10. How did you find it there? How was the culture different than consulting? What did you enjoy the most? I think when you work in consulting, you're working very much on a project base. So you work extremely hard in bursts and then you you effectively give up that company and move on to the next project. Whereas what I was yearning for was to, to stay with a company and permanently support it and grow it. And I think at Goo, I got really, really lucky because I did pretty much every role in the business. It was just a perfect time. The number of people we had was sort of 20 or 30 people. We were growing quickly and everyone was, it was a very entrepreneurial 
obviously, but you know, it was a really entrepreneurial setup where there was work I was doing in in sales and then marketing and then customer care we set up and then technical. So I was just so fortunate that happened. And I think the culture was very much get muck in together, get stuff done. Like I remember we had some chocolate brownies we needed to repack for an event <laughs> we, were, we were doing at the weekend. And basically everyone's there on Friday night, eight o'clock, music on, had some beers and and doing stuff. And it's sort of not the sort of thing would happen in, in consulting in the same way. No one cared about levels. No one cared about, you know, whether it was a practical job or, or a more of a, a brainy type job. So wonderful, wonderful culture, uh, very product obsessed and, I kind of didn't realize at the time, but I think the world's moved on a little bit. So I, I was, you know, I'm now extremely healthy and care about the food that I eat. But back then I didn't really twig on that. And it, we made really indulgent desserts and there was no real purpose to the business in terms of wider impact on the world. But in terms of culture and in terms of product obsession and brand, it was first class and it gave me an amazing education and rub, rubbed off on me. It was my first experience in a brand. Yeah, it's a powerful point. I mean, if you look at Innocent, which probably was on the rise during a similar time, I think everyone back then believed that Innocent is like the biggest health company. And nowadays, I don't think people would drink these smoothies anymore because people understand they're full of sugar and so on. And so perception has massively changed in the last 10 years. Um, That said, my household is still eating goo all the time. Um, (laughs) They're very delicious. Um, And then the company got sold to a bigger food company. And how did you feel about, I guess, the culture changing? And why did you then ultimately decide to leave? So I remember when we were meeting various different potential acquirers, and there was this one guy who was meeting with our senior team, and they were a potential bidder, or they were a bidder. And he basically went around our table at this dinner, saying that we'd all be disappearing within 12 months because they'd bring it all in-house and I was very thought, candid <laughs> yeah pretty candid and that was you know to be absorbed into a larger business so I was sort of thinking okay and then at the same similar time I'd met the guys at Ella's Kitchen the children's food company mm. so I had it lined up that if if there was a sale of goo I would go to Ella's Kitchen and I actually resigned the day after the deal which in hindsight wasn't the best thing because didn't look good on the on the senior team i was very loyal to the goo team and and really proud of what we did there so probably should have waited a bit longer but i was i don't know sort of itching to go and do something else rather than being being absorbed into a larger company where I didn't didn't feel like my instinct very early on was that i wouldn't be as uh, enjoy it in the same way and i think ella's kitchen is quite a bit larger than goo like if I remember correctly, what like a hundred million roughly in in uh, pounds turnover. So like, how did you feel about this being a bigger company? What were the similarities? I guess both are highly entrepreneurial businesses, fast growing still. Goo, I thought we'd grown hugely and and been this you know medium sized business, but actually we weren't that big when I when I look back at it. And when I when I joined Ella's Kitchen, it was a much smaller business, so I was sort of coming in with someone oh, with a wow, bit more okay. experience into a smaller business. So that was kind of funny looking at it. But then over a, over a five year period, yeah, we, we grew to about 100 million from an Ella's Kitchen point of view. Became very global, became the market leader in the UK. Team got up to about 75 people and. I took on other other responsibilities as well. So huge learning for me. I think the difference probably in terms of, I picked up brand customer obsession from Jim and the Goo team. And Ella's Kitchen had that, but also it was, it was very focused on purpose. So 
Paul, the founder, who is incredible, he set it up to create better eating habits for children. And he had this amazing passion and, and determination to do that and, be, and and think differently. You know, we were the first guys to do pouches rather than glass jars for children's food and baby food. Mm. And that rubs off on you. So I, I was sort of brainwashed by him to think much more about purpose. And also I think it changed me as a person. When you go into consulting, I probably was a similar person at Goo. It's very much about data and results and, and commercial drive. And actually Paul had a lovely empathy and it rubbed off on us as a team where I became much more thoughtful and a better listener and less about sort of forcing things to happen, but more about how you can think and inspire different people. And particularly when the business got bigger and, and you've got we had an office in America as well. And that was an amazing learning ground for me to develop just a whole new mindset and, and skills. You mentioned earlier that you really enjoyed kind of the marketing side, but I think at Ella's Kitchen, you joined as chief operating officer. So how did you feel operations? And I guess, what did you learn about your own preferences and what energizes you? I lack a big strength and maybe that is my strength because I'm I'm a real generalist. You know, same at school, same at different places I've worked. I've always been okay or good at things, but never the best and, and the same at Goo, I was always doing different departments and learning from Ella's Kitchen is again running different departments, but more operational at that time. And I think I wanted to just keep evolving and just enjoy the whole business really. And then when 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 Ella's Kitchen sold to a large company called Hain in in the US, they asked me and a guy called Mark Cardigan to run the business together as Paul was Paul was stepping down as um, day-to-day running the business. And that was pretty cool because I got, again, wider responsibility and think about the whole business. So I, I've definitely sort of always had a mini CEO aspect inside me, but partly because I've never been good enough to be the expert in one thing. That's a, that's a powerful point. And what did you enjoy about that job? The Well, being the managing or co-managing directors of Ella's Kitchen post-sale, like did it, I guess, did it fuel your appetite to be even more in the central um, position in the next job? Yeah, I think I just love every aspect of a business. And that was, it was a great belief in me because various people were leaving the team and they, um, you know, being acquired by a large company and they wanted it to be run fairly autonomously. So I didn't have high expectations about staying there too long, but I actually did enjoy it for a bit and stayed a year or two. And they're very respectful of us and gave us a lot of freedom. Uh, I, actually, my next role was a bit more taking a, a huge risk. I sort of couldn't quite ever think up my own example of a brand to launch myself, but then I was asked to to run a brand that had zero revenue in Europe. Well, and that was a breakfast drink brand called Up and Go, and. That was sort of my my entrepreneurial calling has always been there and sort of not quite being the founder, but sort of the, the next best thing. And that was hard because it, it, it basically never achieved its sales expectations and we'd pumped so much money into the launch and it was sort of a, a tough moment. But I think you learn a lot when things don't go well. I think I, I got, you know, Ella's Kitchen and Goo are such success stories and there's so many things I've learned from there, but actually on the up and go front, there's, there's lots that didn't go so well and you learn just as much if not more from from those aspects but there's definitely something about the early stages that i enjoy and that's why i took a bit of a risk i've always been on the risk profile front take the risk and i think by going to these different brands you create amazing resilience and, and learning and confidence and you have to be kind of slightly confident and a bit optimistic to want to go into smaller businesses tell me a bit more about that that confidence and resilience point 
because I guess it must be a quite tough experience, company not succeeding after the, the other two companies you worked at scaling hugely and being sold successfully. Like, how did you, I guess, condition yourself to think positively and dissect, you know, the process and the learnings and to walk away with even, you know, better mindset and resilience? That sounds quite challenging. Yeah, I think I've always had something inside me that has that inner belief in my, myself. So yeah, I think it knocks your confidence. Like I said, that that lady gave me that, um, my first review, Ellie Kay, saying that wasn't as good as this amazing financial modeler. I'm quite good at bouncing back quickly and and I've done various bits of coaching. And I know, I know you have as well, I remember listening to one of your episodes where you talk about learning to be a coach yourself. So I've done a lot yes. of that and personality profiling. And I did a really cool course at London Business School for a month where you really kind of dig deep into yourself and, and understand. And when we did the resilience scoring, I was sort of off the scale. So something about me is enough self-confidence to bounce back quickly. I think you do also learn from experience. And I'm my resilience at Huel is so much stronger from having seen highs and lows of different brands. And when anything anything's th that's thrown at us, I feel calm. Like people would say I'm quite calm in terms of feedback I get. And that that does come from somewhere inside you, but also from the experiences that you have that allow you to use your memories. Say, oh, I remember what that's like and I remember how to succeed. I think also my wife, Polly, so she started her own brand, The Fold, and seeing her uh, going through that that startup phase as well, I, I sort of shared in that with her and that helps. And we, it's quite rare to have two CEOs in one house, I guess, and we <laughs> bounce off each other each each day. And sometimes one of you's up the other's down, you need to pull each other up. So there's, there's a lot of benefit from that, but it's also quite hard because it's incredibly exhausting, as you know, running a business and you have to make sacrifices and you, you see your friends less and you, you see your family less and you, you are, are quite tired and you, you give everything. I'm quite an obsessive type person. So yes, I've got more support around me through her, but also it's probably harder to kind of unload on her as much because sometimes she might need to unload on me and if, if you're both having a tough time that could be quite quite difficult for you what do you do to re-energize yourself if you have a tough time for you know not a couple of days but maybe for a couple of weeks how do you pull yourself out so something i've learned is exercise and sleep so funny i think about consulting you don't sleep that much because you have these amazingly tough deadlines and you have to achieve them and then you sort of sleep for a day and sleep it off whereas in a business it's more of a marathon your your brand i i could work 24 7 every day and still not achieve everything i want to achieve so i've learned to sleep better and i think if i if i'm tired and not feeling full of beans that rubs off on everyone and you, you probably feel that as well you know you need to be finding the way of you being excited and confident and that inspires other people around you so i've learned to sleep better i go to bed earlier and i also find just exercise if i haven't exercised i don't feel particularly happy i don't feel particularly healthy so we're super lucky at Huel. we've got an awesome gym at hq and then i work out at home and we've been doing more sort of at home working but if i don't exercise i don't sleep i just turn into a bit of a disaster It's very similar for me. I exercise every single day and it's mainly to just stay mentally fit and to sleep well. And I also think the marathon point is fantastic. I kind of had to learn over 
you know, banking and working in a hedge fund and then scaling myself as the CEO to not always operate at nine out of 10 intensity, but mm. to be quite purposeful when to like slow down and how to almost, you know, work at four out of 10 most of the time and then be okay uh, with periods of super high intensity when you need it and to dial it up almost. Talk to me about Yule then. So in, in September, 2017, you joined the company. How big was it when you joined we were probably about five to 10 million revenue. And now we're about a hundred million pound run rate revenue. Congratulations. Um, yeah, it's so scaled so well. And um, it's been super fun, uh, super energizing. And I feel like we've built a great team. It's a very, it's category creating. So it's quite, quite tricky at times. So complete food is how we would define the category. And there's something magical about the brand. And I first spoke to Julian about four years ago. So Julian's the founder. There's something quite magnetizing about the brand and, and him as well. And it just had a really impressive start, mainly UK business, 100% direct consumer at the time, still mainly direct consumer. And it just sort of changed people's views on, on, on eating. And we're more about nutrition rather than pure satisfaction. And we think about entertainment meals being sort of family and friends and usually more dinners and, and weekends. Whereas you're eating 21 meals a week, most of those meals should be more about nutrition. You don't want to spend time cooking for for some of them and you want fast food, but good, good food. And um, we're, we're very low carbon footprint food, so it's better for the planet. So we've grown really well. Um, you know, watch, watch you guys a lot over the years and sort of sort of a cousin maybe of both focusing on meal type products and direct consumer. That's been great. And internationally it's been pretty cool. So we're, we're big in America and big in parts of Europe and Asia as well. So it's been, it's been full on, but super fun. I think all the experience I've had from the different brands have allowed me to help scale it in the right way. And I feel really proud of everything we've done so far. Yeah, you should be. I mean, it's an amazing success story. Um, let me just quickly stay on the on the Julian point. It feels like common denominator across most of the businesses you've worked at. You've worked in founder-led companies, so very, very strong, opinionated people. And then you joined Yule when the company had five to 10 million in revenues. And Julian, I think, is still in the business. So how did you find it in the early days to almost contract with him, what he's deciding, what you are deciding? I've never met him, but I can imagine like he's he's got a couple of uh, fairly strong views on certain parts of the product. Yeah, I think so. I've, I've been super lucky in, in having worked with lots of founders. So I've I've understood how to navigate that. And there's something special about the instinct a founder has. And what I always try and do is harness that. So give him the space to come up with magical thinking around things. And he thinks differently to everyone else that we have. You know, he, he started it as a hobby though, right? So he'd already sold his previous business and pretty much retired age 40. And okay. he always liked to keep him busy for a few days a week with something interesting. So, and something he wanted to be, be proud of. So when he called me and spoke to me, it was like, this is, this has got so much potential. Can you come and run it and and, and I'll work with you and, and support and make it big. So we got on really well and lots of complimentary skills and experiences. I've done a lot more on food. He's, he's done a lot more on, on all things uh, digital. And we, what we've done is basically build, build the team as well. Right. I think 
there's a lot of focus publicly, like me and you talking now as people that run businesses and and sort of we're more in the public limelight, but actually the team around us is what makes us special. And all the people we hire are arguably the biggest decisions that we make in the business. And I've listened to you a lot talking on your podcast about different people and how that makes a difference. And I think each stage in the business, there's the perfect person in the perfect role. And that's more important than individuals, but clearly people externally want want to focus on us as individuals, right? Yeah, completely. I mean, the misperception is it's all about the founder and the CEO, but ultimately this is like the biggest team sport ever. Totally agree. And I guess one of the fascinating points you just made is, you know, at each stage of the journey, um, you need almost different types of skills and, and people. So you've done 10X in under four years. So how did you feel the leadership team had to change and how did you enable the change and how does the team feel today versus four years ago when you joined? I think it's the hardest part about scaling a business is how the team evolves. You definitely need more people with the right experience the bigger you get to handle the complexity. It just, it just works that way. But sometimes you can make mistakes doing that. I, I think I've been through different experiences and intuition. I think we've done a good job in very, making very few mistakes. But I remember hearing about Brewdog, if you if you heard that story, where I think the guy said they brought in six new people who are sort of bigwigs to kind of run run the company and pretty much all of them left within 12 months. Mm. So you can get it horribly wrong. And I think the way I look at it is when you are in a scale phase business, you have to be both the builder and the architect. If you come in and you're in a larger company and you're the architect sort of, really high up in the sky looking down on things it doesn't work because there's so much heavy lifting still to do when the business is only five years old like we are and the best people who've joined us have been those who can roll their sleeves up and we've we've got a phrase at Huel which is muck in together so you've got to muck in together but you've also got to add new ideas strategy thinking experience that can make you a bigger business I spend a lot lot of time personally on recruitment like I, I scour LinkedIn a lot and look at individuals and sort of mentally headhunt them and quite a few people that we've hired into both the senior team and and other people in the business have come through either myself or someone else or Julian's really good at it as well Um, using LinkedIn as our friend and and that I think that's I I over-index on all things people in the business particularly recruitment and onboarding because it's it's the single largest driver about our future success yeah 100% and how do you find time to be the architect and not just the builder? Like, did you have to say, I don't know, once a month I go and lock myself up in my office and think about the world, the future of food? Or what like mechanisms did you find helpful? It is something I struggle with. And, and at various stages, I think it needs more hands-on or, or more taking a step back. I think lockdown has been quite interesting because it sort of forces you to spend more time on your own. I'm I'm a real people person and I enjoy being with the business and with the people and I, I struggle with that under lockdown. But at the same time, I probably have more more thinking time. So I need to get better at taking a step back. Um, it's it's really tricky because I'm someone who's evolved into a really good spotter and I, I, I can spot things, whether it's our, our packaging or our tone of voice. And I, I've got a really high bar. So I'm probably quite annoying <laughs> to our team because I'll constantly say, hey, why don't we do this? Why don't we do this? And this should be better and this should be better. But it's something I can't, I can't help. But at the same time, it's quite different to someone who enjoys doing details. I don't enjoy doing details, but my attention is detail strong. And I think that's a, that's a strength of me and our business. But at the same time, as we get bigger, I can't be that person. And my challenge is to keep building our team's confidence and experience and 
training to allow them to take over more. So the bigger the business gets, the more we and I need to delegate because uh, there's so many more decisions that happen each day. And I, I think actually definitely in the last sort of six to 12 months, I've realized that more, particularly because of what's happened with lockdown and you have to trust in each other and rely on each other to do the right thing. And maybe that's a bit of an unfair question, but what do you think is is the one thing that only you can do in the business? Oof. I don't think there is one thing I, I can do in the business. I think probably my strength is the ability to understand every area of the business enough to support that area. And I think a lot of people, and even some CEOs, but a lot of people over-index too much in one area. And that, that's a good thing. They should play to it. But I actually genuinely enjoy every area of the business. And therefore, I think that gives me respect from those teams and I can help in those areas. And I think being a generalist is probably my, my biggest strength. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. Um, and I think, I mean, to what extent is you vertically integrated? Are you manufacturing? No, we're not actually. Mm -hmm. And and similar to Ella's Kitchen and Goo relied on third-party partners to help us support on the, and, and manufacture the product. Uh, we have external third-party logistics. Uh, there's about six warehouses around the world that we, we have as well. Um, so it's, it's, you know, maybe one day might be, a, there might be a, a scenario to bring that in house, but for now we've just got really close relationships with people we work with and it allows us to focus a bit more on brand and customer obsession. But at the same time, we've got a pretty decent op ops team these days handling packaging and ingredients. We brought ingredients in house, which is quite a big deal. So we used to use brokers more for different ingredients, but now we've got in-house procurement team and technical raw materials team to make sure we've got the best ingredients with the lowest carbon footprint, the best taste, the best nutrition from different parts of the world. Amazing. And I'm sure your food experience comes in super handy. You mentioned that Julian kind of brings the digital side and you've obviously worked in food businesses. What's the DNA like? Would you consider yourself a food business, a digital business? I mean, obviously, it's a brand-led business, but how would you describe it? Yeah, it's funny. I do I do an induction with, with each person when they join the business, and I I say there's a there's a triangle. We're a we're a FMCG business, but we're also a retailer, and we're also a tech business with a sort of strange combination. There are there are very few actual proper direct consumer food businesses, and I know everyone's jumping on the bandwagon under COVID, but Gusto and Huel are rare in that they can actually operate a proper direct consumer model. I think a lot of people, when they say e-commerce, they mean you're selling a product on a retailer's website elsewhere, or you sell on Amazon, which is which is quite different. So I think it's really hard to describe. We're, we're a food tech business or direct consumer FMCG business. No, great point. Yeah. And I think Highland invested 20 million pounds a couple of years ago. So how has that changed the dynamic between Julian and yourself and the leadership team? And I guess also how has the board evolved since then? So I think we've, and credit to uh, Julian and a guy called Clive who's on our board. So they, they worked together in his last business. But what that created is that Huel very early on had a really strong board when, when Clive joined and a guy called Jamal, who's ex-Monster and Red Bull. Oh, of course. Yeah, I met him. Yeah, so that so when I joined, I sort of felt like, do you know what? For a business that's 20 odd people and only been around for two years, it's a really smart, sophisticated board. And there are other businesses that don't have an external board, right? At that stage, they just keep going a bit longer. So it's functioning really well. We we needed some cash, uh, mainly from a, a stock point of view. We were 
chasing our tails and getting bank loans and trying to sort out stock levels, running them a bit tight, which felt like a, a, a kind of poor waste of time. So Highland came in in September 18 and invested 20 odd million. That was brilliant help there. But also just as people, they fitted really well. So Stan Laurent joined our board and he is an ex-CEO himself. He's a great guy. Yeah. yeah, and running, ran Photobox and Moonpig and that for me personally gives massive help in a mentor uh, support and, and and the rest of the board. So we've got quite a different view though on, on boards. It's interesting. I think particularly also having Highland as a VC rather than maybe a, a kind of a private equity where they might own a, a higher percentage. But we try and maximize discussion and minimize presenting, which means that we we send out pre-reads and we, ju- we jump straight into discussion points and it makes it much more useful to us. And, and often it's about saying, here's what we're about to do. Do you guys agree? Or do you think we're crazy in what we're, what we're doing? Rather than uh, one, one experience where a larger private equity owner and the whole board meeting felt like constant big presentations and people practicing for it. And you didn't really talk much. There wasn't much discussion on the right thing. So I'm super proud of how our, how our board works and hasn't really changed much actually since Highland got involved other than we've got more voices around the table. Uh, we've got Lawrence and Helena from Highland as well who, who add a different angle and support. So we've got a really wonderful board. Laurent really stands out in the sense that he's operated a large um, consumer business and he thinks very strategically. Some of the challenges I see in a lot of businesses is this challenge of how do you overcome the VC bias towards short-term numbers obsession, which, as you said, ends up in endless presentations. Um, So I love the focus on maximizing discussion and kind of the importance of signposting. And how do you kind of strategically inspire yourself? Do you have, I guess, mentors, businesses to emulate? I mean, under normal circumstances, travel somewhere particularly? Yeah, do you know what? Some of my the be- best ideas, and particularly thinking strategically, are when I'm on a flight or in the shower or driving to work and not at, not at a laptop or <laughs> the desk. And it, and it's quite I've looked into it before. There's scientific reasons as to why that happens. Like I was driving home recently from the office and rang Rebecca, our, our head of people, and had like five thoughts in my head, and I didn't have them before I started the car car journey. So. That works for me. I think we are our board again, fantastic at, at bouncing off strategic ideas. I absolutely love podcasts, and in normal times, I'm I'm in the car about an hour and a half a day, so I managed to get sort of two to three podcasts in, listening at sort of one and a half times speed, and that's as good, if not better, as books. I I, I learn a lot from other businesses and different stories, and listen to a lot of your your podcasts and. And others and it that's huge i think i'm also just the world i'm in and the type of person i am I've, I've just got friendly with a lot of people in a similar role or or different businesses where you kind of ring each other up and ask favors and learn from what they do they learn from what from what you do so i think when we're, we're quite similar team and we're quite young running businesses and therefore you probably have to be a bit more uh, open-minded and listen to others more rather than being sort of a, a traditional alpha male ceo of the so I'm I'm massively into asking for advice and we do a team server every every six months to our team here. A lot of it sort of points that are directed at me individually or, or the wider team that I'm responsible for both and do some coaching and do some 360 surveys sometimes. So I'm a very growth mindset person. Um, came across Carol Dweck uh, years ago as a- Yeah, of course. Stuck with me, right? And I think I was a bit more fixed mindset then. So that was a bit of a penny dropping moment for me to be humble, listen- 
learn and know that you can always be better. And how did you manage? Um, so the book is amazing. It talks about fixed versus um, growth mindset. But how did you manage to kind of make the unconscious conscious and, and kind of, I guess, surface your own biases to then challenge yourself to think more in a growth mindset way and not a fixed mindset way? Can you give any example? Funny enough, I actually mentioned my, my inductions I do with people. I, I put that in there. So every time I tell someone, look, we should be more growth mindset than fixed mindset, it's like a, a weekly reminder. We, we bring on about one person per week. So it forces me to think in that way. Uh, I can't think of any specific examples of what I what I do to practice that other than it sort of, I've talked about it so much. It has changed me. What, what I probably need more is people around me to say, well, I'm not doing it because we, we are all biased, aren't we? In terms of how we see ourselves, which is about mm. better feedback. And I think it's something we're trying to work really hard on at the moment is, I, I don't know whether, how you find it, but sometimes when it's a real fast paced environment, people just focus on the sort of the product or the new thing you're launching or the, the new site improvement rather than individuals and saying, Hey, what could I do better? And what could you do better? And a friend of mine, you mentioned innocent earlier, a friend of mine was at innocent back in the day. And he had a concept called speed back. And it was a common, it was feedback mixed with speed dating. <laughs> and, <laughs> and they do a couple of minutes and it forced you all just to give quick feedback regularly. And I think that's magical. I've never managed to replicate it here, but it's a really cool concept to think about. It's a really good idea. Yeah. And if you fast forward by the next, I don't know, three, seven, 10 years, what do you see as the biggest blockers to scaling by another 10x? And obviously, we don't have to go into confidential data, but just what, what are, I guess, the biggest kind of scaling issues you see today and, and then in the next couple of years? We have a vision of being a, a, a larger business, so hundreds of millions of pounds of turnover and changing the way the world thinks about food and for that to happen, we need to be more of a global business. So we, we sell currently to 80 countries around the world, but there's only about five to 10 that we actually focus on. And the, the UK and the US are our largest uh, countries to properly scale and be a truly global business. And I've, I've got a vision of wanting to be the, the Patagonia of food and being a brand that people see as a positive benefit to society, but a really cool brand as well that you want to be associated with. Going global is really hard. And each country you go into just needs so many different rules and 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 how people are as social norms so we're we're building up our, our international team quite heavily at the moment and it's probably our biggest barrier to can we succeed and be a properly global business is how well we do that i think our product as well the actual keep launching new products and we're obsessed by can we keep tweaking our product to get uh, continual improvements and happiness and word of mouth is the biggest driver of our business and therefore people saying this is an incredible product and we will never rest until we there's never enough you could do on the product so very product obsessed and i think in the next you know five years like you said we need to continually evolve the product at the same time i mean you mentioned going global which i can only imagine is hugely challenging can you share some of the key learnings so far and, and particularly what's worked well when the great thing about direct consumers you can kick off fairly quickly and also, we're built on on social media quite a lot. It's a huge channel for us in terms of what people talk about, both in terms of organic and, and paid. And you can see the markets where people talk about us and they want us to be there. It's just how do you make that happen? So we've we've got little sort of skunk works type teams. I don't know if you, you guys use that um, concept. Uh, no. So we, we basically take, you know, a, a, 
one person from each relevant function and use that to launch in a new country or to launch a new product. So we launched a... Okay, very, very similar concept, different terminology, but yeah, yeah similar. And that's that's definitely helped us. So as I was joining, we were, we, were, we were launching into the US and there was two people pretty much working on that full time just to do that. So I think trying to get the rest of the business to focus on what you're currently doing, but the new stuff spreading out to other new people or we've had some interns and consultants to help make that happen as well otherwise it's just really hard to focus arguably the last you know last year or two we probably diluted ourselves a bit too much across lots of different geographies and now we're trying to backfill and and um, reach our potential in those markets yeah i mean to me the, the question always is, is how do you underwrite asymmetric risk like in, in simple words i guess um how do you find huge opportunities that could materialize in three to six years but today don't disrupt the entire organization and don't take huge headspace so that we don't lose focus and i feel like it qu requires quite a lot of um discipline in how you think about it and when to start and so on and i'm not sure if we nailed it but uh You made some great points. And just on a more personal level, like if you fast forward by 10 years, like what would success on a personal level look like for you? What's the dream? To be on an island or <laughs> to have your own business um, or to sit on boards? Do you know, I don't think about it very much because I feel very in the moment on all things fuel. It's something that I just love and obsessed by. Uh, I think helping my my wife with her business, I enjoy as well and be that support for her. Uh, I've got two young kids as well, a two-year-old and a five-year-old. So that's that's a good switch off. <laughs> it and is. just sort of juggling them and fuel and support to my wife is sort of takes up all my mental energy. There's not much thinking beyond then. I, I've got, you know, I've got this this view on on fuel being, like I said, a sort of Patagonia of um, a food version of Patagonia and I'm quite relentless with those sorts of things. I find it quite hard to think about other other areas and um, whilst I'm sort of in, in the zone. So yeah, I don't really think about it much. And what makes great leaders great? And I mean, you mentioned that leaders have different strengths, but what's kind of the one advice you would give um, leaders joining Yule or any leaders at Gusto or any other company? When it's in the, in the scale phase and a growth phase, it changes so much in terms of the business and the world around you and i think we've all got the ability to have our blinkers on and not understand and be very self-aware so i i spend a lot of time asking for feedback and i will sit with individuals or with groups and every single time i sit with someone i learn something new and it changes my mind on something so i think i i try and over index on keeping nimble we talk about being a speedboat not an oil tanker and to do that i've got to understand what do our team think what do our customers think so i probably spend about half an hour every day going through our forum on our site twitter instagram emails from customers what are people saying about us and what are our team so we use the word hooligan so hooligan is someone who either works at Hewl, <laughs> love it Or they're That's a customer, great. and I think yeah. if I just if I focus on those two daily, what what's our Hooligan customer saying, and what's our Hooligan employee saying, then I think I'll do a good job. And to just be a little bit provocative, like if you get feedback every single day and you action all the feedback, how do you avoid just being average? Yeah, so I think from a team point of view, definitely not every day. Uh, 
that'd be a bit overwhelming. But in terms of understanding what our customers are saying, I, I just think that's super sense. important. Yeah. There's definitely things where disagree with what, what an individual might say or things they, they've changed my opinion on. And I think someone's bouncing around and maybe I'm maybe I'm a bit too sort of open and wanting to to hear it and sometimes need to be a bit more decisive on this is what we should do. Um, but I think when we do say, right, this is what we're going to do and here's why, I think people will feel listened to and they feel more more confident in carrying on with it, even if they disagree. And that's quite important to me for people to understand the why. Why?